I'm Ishika and I'm Akshay. The thing about wildlife is anyone can fall in love with it through science, photography, literature or innocent observation. Sharing their love today is Meghna Agarwala, an ecologist and professor at Ashoka University who studies the overlapping interests of humans, forests and wildlife in central India. Today we are pleased to have with us Meghna Agarwala as our guest on the Think About Wildlife podcast. Uh, Meghna is a, presently an assistant professor of environmental studies at Ashoka University in Delhi, where besides research, she teaches courses on GIS and remote sensing, theoretical ecology, and conducts a seminar on human wildlife conflict. Meghna is among the few researchers in India who are, walk, who are walking the talk about interdisciplinary research, marrying forest ecology with remote sensing and conservation, using a socio-economic lens to examine livelihoods of marginalized communities. We're really excited to chat with you, Meghna. Uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Think About Wildlife podcast. Thank you for having me, Akshay. So starting off, I think um, we always start our podcast with early experiences, uh, things that have shaped your career. Um, And we've received some very unexpected answers along the way in our podcast. Uh, So tell us your story. Where did you grow up? What role did the natural world play in you growing up? Okay. So I actually grew up in Delhi. Where, as you know, the natural world, I mean, you can define it whichever you want, but the natural world as we imagine it is quite far away. So if you grow up in Delhi, like, you know, there aren't that many trees, it's pretty dry, there's not much monsoon. So for me, the natural world was always an outside space. And I I guess I was lucky that there used to be this trek this Himalayan adventure trails trek that the school used to allow people to uh, go for. It was like 20 days. You'd be walking 20 kilometers a day, but you'd be going to places like Biasco or Dodi Tal and really far off places. So I started going at the age of 11 and the beauty you see there and just everything about it. Like I had never experienced anything in my life and I wanted to go there every year and I wanted to do that for the rest of my life somehow related to walking in the Himalayas long distances. Wow, that's such an early, like, fun exposure to some incredible landscape. And I'll just uh, carry on with that answer, actually. So then I thought I wanted to go do something on environment. It's related to the environment, but I didn't know what. So for my bachelor's, because I was interested in environment and Biology is more fun than physics or chemistry, right? So I thought I was going to like major in zoology. And so I took all the subjects that would help me be an environmental scientist. Chemistry, zoology, botany, and geology. What happened was by the end of it, like, you know, in zoology lab, they make you dissect scoliodon. And so I was like, I can't keep doing this. So I ended up majoring in chemistry. Now, <laughs> chemistry is a subject that's really an acquired taste. And so I did that. So I did my bachelor's in chemistry. And so when I did my master's also, even though it was master's in environmental science, it was, it was very hard, like chemical processes and physical process and meteorological processes. So I think I finally decided that I wanted to do this forever. I was a volunteer Nature Conservation Foundation. And oh, wow. I was working with Shumonto Bakchi. And he, so he was the first person who took me to the field and explained to me how it works. And so he'd like show me, okay, this plant is growing, right? But why do you think it's growing? So he made me do deductive reasoning, et cetera, et cetera. And it really changed my perspective on what in environmental studies I wanted to do. 
Oh, that's very cool. I actually feel like, uh, you know, that broad spectrum, take every subject remotely related to the environment is something I also relate to very much, which is exactly what I ended up uh, doing as well. Uh, and it's it's great that you had that early exposure to things like deductive reasoning, because I think that's something that uh, very often we, have, we learn quite later on, and uh, you have to unlearn so much to bring that in so yeah yeah i can see I how i was really lucky that yeah so you've also um, experienced so many different hubs for ecology uh, through time like now we also know that since you were 11 you've been trekking in the himalayas which is of course in a way also a hub for ecology but then even when you've gotten to education um, you know you went to ferguson in pune you did jnu in delhi you went to yale columbia and now you're at Ashoka in Delhi. So each university has its own goals, its own motivations, and even its own environment, right? So could you briefly tell us about those experiences along the way, like what each one of those was like for you? So if you're in the environmental scene in Delhi, because it's so divorced from the natural world, it's very much focused on saving the street dogs, etc., etc. So my earliest experiences in the environmental field in Delhi was, you know, volunteering for dog shelters and this whole animal rights movement, right? So I guess that was the first hub. And you can imagine that the ideology there is quite different from the ideology of the other hubs, right? And so that was my first exposure to environmental thing was, you know, uh, feeling empathy and sympathy for animals. So I guess that was the first one. Then in Ferguson, I'm not sure if they were, like, it's a government college, right? So government colleges don't really have an agenda, except that they want to teach you the canon or what. So, but in uh, Ferguson, the geology department was really good. And so it's, uh, I was really inspired by geology. And also, I'm coming from Delhi, right? Where if you want to go to the Himalayas, you can't go every weekend, you could go in the summer. But if you're living in a place like Pune, it's like every weekend you can go to the sea, you can go to the bakery, uh, you can go to the Western Ghats. And that really changed my perspective. And that just everybody was just always going into nature. And they're not very long uh, walks, etc. might be four or five hours, but it's still, it's so close and it's so touchable. Also, not just the biodiversity, that's also the geological diversity. So I think Ferguson for me really helped in giving me like a more everyday exposure to the two different sorts of environment. And I think what I took away from that is A, the canon, and B, the, the labs. Like for example, even now, like if I go to the field, like I can identify the rocks. I can, and you know, if you identify the rocks, you can tell a lot about the ecological history of that vocation. So that was really uh, quite something. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so after that, uh, you continued at JNU in Delhi, yeah. right? And so, yeah. So, JNU is, uh, as you know, it's like a, a premier uh, institution, research institution, and they have these entrance exams, right? Yeah. And so, you clear the entrance exam, and it is an honor to clear the entrance exam. So, you go there. Yeah. And so, I went to the School of Environmental Sciences, and there were 13 of us in that class. And it was a really different experience from anything I've experienced later or before. Uh, the other thing that they did was they very much taught 
they taught you again i'm going to say this they taught you canon okay so for example whether they're teaching you thermodynamics or chemical reactions or ecosystems they're teaching you like the canon so there are two advantages there you can clear your jrf and net exams okay which really helps and the second thing is and i didn't appreciate it so much at the time but now it really holds me in good stead so if there's any question that i need to work on that is outside of my prim, uh, primary uh, subject expertise i can go back to all the knowledge i gained in jnu because the the professors uh, when i was there was there were the, when i was there was really good and they could really explain and they really made you study from like really good textbooks etc so one thing which uh, is also interesting is that you've done a second masters abroad right and uh, it must be a very different learning experience right to be uh, studying in the indian education system versus the us education system so could you maybe shed some light on what that is like in terms of just yeah going so so i first went to yale and i have to say like i didn't even know education could be like that right where it was so applied and practical and you could like it just felt okay so i guess what i'm go, going to say is there's a sort of a can do attitude there right it seems that nothing is beyond you you can be at the frontier and so what i so for example uh, i was there in this course called masters of environmental science which required that you do a thesis and so with in the first semester they had like research methods classes that helped you formulate a proposal which is something i had not done before so you write the proposal then you get the funding you get the permits you execute the pro, uh, the project you write it up you publish it that whole cycle i had never experienced before and the skills to practically implement that proposal also were skills i did not have I had theoretical knowledge, but I did not know how to do GIS. I did not know how to do a field survey. I did not know how to design a field survey. So all of those skills, the practical applications, and just the whole cycle of from getting an idea to writing the proposal, workshopping it, raising the money, doing the project, writing it up, publishing it—that was an incredible experience. The second thing I would say is that I had only studied science. and so uh, when i was at yale i did a f- I, I, in, i only did my first humanities course in my fourth semester at yale and so i had just come back from sholapur which is where my field site was and when i was in sholapur i was i was studying the the wolves but like the the society that i was in i had nothing to compare it to like i did not understand anything about it like all the all the all the uh, preconceived notions that I had, I had inherited from not studying social sciences or humanities they just didn't not give me any tools to understand the system and so my fourth semester I happened to take this course on environmental history/anthropology and what it was was uh, there was this professor at Yale called professor K Shiva Ramakrishnan and what he did was every week he read a book on environmental history/anthropology in India and when i read those books i was just like so much made sense and i had seen the field for so many years that i had no way of i had no tools to analyze earlier so i think that was the other huge take away from studying at yale is a the whole practicality can do you know any question you have you can attempt to answer it 
and you can attempt to answer the question that's on the frontiers, but also humanities. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's that sounds just about right because we we at uh, you know uh, both Ishik and I studied at uh, NCBS the master's program, and that's the kind of model they try to emulate. And you 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 see that it, it that students come out feeling somewhat similarly about being able to take it, take an idea from cradle to grave and then integrating into yeah. methods. So that's what that's so that's what the NCBS model is the same. That's what so you guys do the same thing, and that's why I guess your graduate students are so good. <laughs> we let <laughs> we probably can't say that or we let someone else judge that but okay, fine. i said it <laughs> cool <laughs> so um so so I, I had a follow up question because you mentioned the sort of uh, good things about the the system abroad right but uh, i think you were in a unique position where you had a ton of field experience before going there and what you did was fill in the gaps in some sense but you probably saw people the other way around right so the who came into that uh, to the, to the can with the can do attitude with zero local context and then there's helicopter science all of that happening around you right i'm sure how was that experience is, is that something that changed how you looked at science so you know the uh, in my head i was always going to come back to india and in india i feel this is impression i got from my years in india was that you have to earn your stripes and to earn your stripes you have to do a certain amount of field work you have to have spent so many years in the field. So I did see people getting away with very little field work, but they were, they were, they, they were, I guess their aim was something else. Does that make sense? Like I knew that that would not fly where I wanted to go. And I was not tempted to do it either because I did meet some people who were doing field work in India. And like when I would see their results, it was like they had like missed like maybe 80% of the predictor, predictor variables, right? And so I just, I did not want to create that sort of research. So, I mean, I did, I did see it, but I was not tempted to emulate it. That's, that's good to know. And it's, and I think it makes a lot of sense when you foreshadow it, right? Like when you do, when you, it's not like you realize this in hindsight, but it's something you know and then go in. But I mean, there are people there who do start with that because it, it's a question of scale, right? So I've been in some areas where we were discussing, okay, did you talk to the local communities? But if you say you're talking to an American student, say from Minnesota, for him, when he's thinking, he thinks the local community may be the Madagascar government, right? Whereas you may see it in a very different perspective. So depending on where you're coming from, who you envision to be the local community also varies. So for instance, even in India, many people say the local community is the village panchayat. But even if you look at the Gram Sabha, etc., those are also fractured, right? They're made of so much, there's so much social hierarchy there as well. So it just depends on which scale are you coming from? What do you, what do you define as local? Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, just, I think, belaboring on that, uh, now as a teacher at Ashoka, uh, what kind of pedagogical tools do you use to build these ideas in people, right? So you're going to have to tell me what pedagogy is. I know you're saying pedagogical tools and I hear it a lot, but what is that specifically that you mean? You've caught me there, but I think people use it in the context of teaching, teaching methodologies, and I'm going to use that word now. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so before I joined Ashoka, the only classes that I had been, that I had led, were these study abroad classes from Columbia to Western parts. 
and these courses were like a month and a half six week courses and they were very much centered around an independent study project so in the beginning we would give them the tools like basically research methods class we give them the tools in order for them to be able to carry out a project they would pitch a proposal they would do the project execute it and write it up so that was my only experience going into teaching at ashoka so i have tried to model my electives in the same manner because i strongly believe in learning through doing however you can't just learn through doing you need some theoretical ideas as well so it depends on your class right so one class that i taught early on was something called life in the neighborhood it was the first course that bio students took and i was co teaching this with imroz khan dr imroz khan who's also at ashoka and so he would do the lab and i would do the field but the idea was for them to come with no theory but to come up with experiments based on observation that makes sense first to biology you observe the nature around you you notice some patterns and then you try to test it using hypothesis but say i'm doing something a little bit more advanced right then at a higher level like say a 200 level course or a 300 level course i mean it's do a disservice to your experimental design if you don't incorporate some theory into it so my with my electives i try to teach it that way where i have 10 weeks of course uh, i have 10 weeks of discussion reading papers reading textbooks etc and then week 10 they uh, present they do a proposal pitch week 11 12 13 they do the project that they do the project like with my help and the tfs help and week 14 they present their results to the class so it's structured the same one course i did have to teach a lot in the beginning but i don't have to teach anymore is this foundation course which is like 100 students per class and it's a compulsory course on evs so then you'd get like 400 students with no interest in the environment right and so then for that your pedagogy is really different because you have 100 students you have to get them through this compulsory course that they have no interest in and so for that we had to think of i had to think of very different methods of teaching yeah no that uh, i think that makes sense it's so reminiscent of college days where just hearing foundation course has this this blanket sense of obligation where like okay this is a course i have to do i can't escape i haven't picked this course and uh, i remember like even though i loved uh, the environment my evs foundation course was so dry and uh, it was such a chore to go to that class yeah, so, yeah. so that's what so then we you try to make it interesting so one thing that we do have at ashoka is we have these discussion sections so we have tfs who can hold smaller discussion sections in groups of 17 and so you try to structure it in such a way that there's a lot of class discussion there's a lot of activities that you they can do in the discussion section with the help of the tf i do make them do some sort of a project but it's more of a lit review and so we do try to and of course people have a impression that environment science is like thermodynamics and climate change etc and you do want to especially because it's a foundation course you do want to cover the spectrum of what is actually available in environmental studies which includes all the sub disciplines of environmental studies yeah that that definitely sounds great and definitely sounds like a better approach than what i've been through as well uh, I, in college yeah so another thing you know that we were wondering about was uh, again to do with how you moved uh, from your first masters to your second and now you're in academics and between your two masters you worked for a year uh, in india with uh, 
you know the wildlife trust of india and so you got a lot of experience working with the local ngo and from there you've now moved more into academia into teaching and into the education side of things so we would assume that somebody who's had a lot of field experience and then gets into this comes at it with a very different lens and you know it's not just uh, you know professorial but it's a lot more in depth and uh, it perhaps even makes your choices on a day to day basis and your expectations a lot more tentative a lot more um, you know colored by your field experience so what is this been like with you and is this a good thing does it make things easier for you or has it complicated things for you in terms of academia so i guess if you look at academia the aim is knowledge production right and if you look at conservation the aim is conservation right but in each of these there there is an aim and i feel that an aim is benefited by everybody who's working towards that aim coming from a different background because then you have a diversity right because if you just have a deterministic view that only this sort of person can do academics and only this sort of person can do conservation then you're going to have only one opinion on each so i feel it helps from a, having a diversity of experiences working in the same field helps the field so i don't think it's an advantage or a disadvantage i can come with this particular lens somebody else can come with a different lens from their different experience and it just it help and they all come together to add to because in the end of the day to solve any problem or to create any knowledge you do need as much diversity of experience coming into it as possible but yeah working at dubai left trust of india i learned a lot they had put me in charge of something called rapid action program which is their small grants program so i literally had to just call ngos across india like all day and so i basically got a crash course in the environmental ngo scene so it was really really i really i learned a lot on that job oh that's amazing that's amazing and one other thread uh, we'd like to pull based on what you just said is definitely there is the multiplicity of opinions and perspectives that is beneficial when you have different kinds of people in conservation versus academia uh, but uh, we also want to and you need both and both yeah absolutely yeah makes sense uh, but there are costs to that right there are costs internal costs to that like for instance you have this internal um, fight within yourself about what you think is good science may not be great conservation and vice versa right so um, how do you reconcile that if if ever you do and Uh, what advice do you have for others who have that so you know one of my earliest experiences in the field was i saw some people hunting black buck and i was like you know not my conservation rage you know getting up to say something and they told me don't you dare you're so privileged shut up so since then i have had a hard time being prescriptive so for instance if i see somebody cut a tree right and they're telling me i really need it because you know i need to take my daughter to the hospital so i just said because i've had that sort of feedback from the very beginning of my career even before i joined academia i find it a really difficult to be prescriptive so in my head my i'm thinking i think more i i guess if you think about it structurally right so there's there are structural you know in uh, structural things that you can do and change the incentive structure so if you're thinking at that if you're thinking at that level then sometimes the conflict reduces does that make sense yeah i think so and also 
I think you've also highlighted the fact that there is so much gray area, right? When you're doing uh, anything even remotely related to conservation, because end of the day, I mean, even if we are working in our own country, many of most of the time we are alien to our own field sites, right? We're coming from a slightly different place, and like you said, uh, those places do tend to be of more privilege than the places we end up working in. So, yeah, no, definitely, and I think it also reminds me of something, uh, you know. I think we also were reading another interview of yours online where you also mentioned that you can be 10, 20 kilometers inside a forest and you still see signs of people there and you still find trails. And I think that's also very humbling. And um, could you perhaps even talk a little bit about that in terms of the different landscapes you've worked in and what kind of, um, you know, what it's been like interacting with the people of those landscapes through your field work? That's a tough question, <laughs> but I guess so. I'll give you an example of my my own PhD work, right? So I was interested in what happens when you transfer resources to local communities. I had imagined it to be a really simple experiment, right? Uh, earlier there were a lot of case studies. I was going to use remote sensing and ecological data, so I'll have multiple sample size. I'll have a large n. I'll be able to test specific hypotheses, and I'll be able to find a conclusive answer. When I went to the field, first of all, now everything everything breaks down. The first thing, the first time I analyzed my results, I found that the villages sort of segregated into two types of villages: those that you could classify as elite capture, and those that you could classify as representative governance. And oddly, where there was representative governance, the forest went down, and where there was elite capture, the forest stayed the same. Now this just makes no sense, right? And so whenever I was presenting it, people were like, you know, maybe you've done the analysis wrong. So then I did the analysis on so many levels, but the result stayed the same, which led me to think, okay, is there a lump? Is this part like what is the precedent on this, right? And so then I had to do this giant literature review to see, okay, where does this fall on the precedent? Does elite capture? Always lead to better forest outcomes than representative governance, and no, it's fifty-fifty. So many other sociological contexts that go into it. So it's seen that in these areas where you have uh, representative governance, the forest is going down. But then, if you look at another sub-branch of ecology, which is paleoecology, what you realize is, at least from the paleoecological data from Central India, that the forests in Central India have been burning for thirteen thousand years. And the the fire and the uh, the species composition keeps switching from like a savanna type forest to like a dry dry and sometimes even moist uh, deciduous forest with precip precipitation and temperature changes. And so you begin to realize, and it seems that so it, then you start to wonder that okay, so maybe the open forest is more natural in this landscape than a closed canopy forest. In which case, if you're seeing the forest go down using remote sensing, the forest canopy go down, it's just becoming open canopy forest, right? And so then we can't really say then that the reduction in forest biomass in forests with representative governance is a bad thing, right? And so therefore, I have nothing prescriptive to say about that, right? Because this all I found was the system is so much more complicated than I thought it was in the beginning. Yeah, that is uh, that's a great uh, 
example case, I guess, for, for young people like us and others listening and that, you know, how complicated things can be. And uh, I remember in one of the interviews you mentioned that unlike wolves, everyone has very nice things to say about trees, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but clearly it's, it is as complicated when you look at trees and people right um just for our listeners can you elaborate a little more on what representative uh, governance and elite capture is on what on what elite capture and uh, representative governance is so in general if you look at the definition for elite capture there's two types of elite capture one is capture of resources and one is capture of decision making and so you may have a, a local governing body but what can happen is that either the uh, the people certain uh, certain people can control the governing body and then so that's you capture the decision making body right the second thing is you may also then capture a disproportionate share of the resources and especially anthropologists have done a lot of work on how this plays out in uh, in the system. So you may then deprive, so it could have various, various outcomes. And I guess uh, representative governance is when there's like free and fair elections. Makes sense, thanks. So we also wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, a lot of important collaboratory work which you've been doing. So uh, you've had fruitful collaborations with Nandini Vallo, uh, with Meghna Krishnadas, and uh, these are big papers that look at uh, you know, ethnic strife, collateral damage to wildlife, and role of protected areas, mitigating forest loss. So these are pretty weighty big topics. And um, it is, of course, you know, not very easy to dig into all of these just by yourself. So do you have a mantra for collaboration that works for you uh, that you think more people should be uh, adopting? Or because it does seem like a daunting prospect, right? To to get into some of these collaborations, even at a, at a larger time scale. I guess the first rule of collaboration is you got to trust your your partner, right? And both Meghna and Nandini are like superb researchers, and you can totally trust them, right? And so, in both of these collaborations, these are like you'll notice that like one of them is Nandini's field side, one of them is Meghna's field side. Right, so that would technically make them the lead because it's their field and they have all the local context. So I'm just coming in with a specific specific skill set, and so it was in both this collaboration was really clear that this needs to be done. I'll do this, you do this, and yeah, that's it. In the in the paper with the Nandini uh, in Nandini's paper it was still relatively straightforward, and that okay, I did the GIS, she did the surveys, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, it came out. But in the case of Meghna, it, there were a couple of iterations also. And what was really great was if one of us, one of us was not able, the other person picked up the slack. So it really worked out really well. So in the beginning, like that Erin, she was my RA, right? I had the money, she could collect the data. Later on, when we had to revise the statistics, like uh, Meghna was in the field and I had to, I had some other commitments as well. And so then Sachin picked up the slack. So it was good with that paper, it really worked out really well in that everybody could like pick up when the other person was not able. So I think the first thing is you've got to trust the person, trust the other person. I have had other collaborations. The thing with Nandini and Meghna is they both are also, they have the same training as me, right? So there's no methodological conflict. 
but I have collaborated with people from other disciplines and there may be methodological conflicts as well. So for example, if you're say uh, working with an economist, right? Uh, economists of the statistics we do is, can be called correlational statistics, right? We have associations. They are really into causal testing mechanisms, right? So their idea of what data you should collect versus your idea of what data you should collect can be very different. Similarly, how much value should you give to the field data? That can also vary. So there's there's a disciplinary uh, difference as well. So again, with Meghna and Andri, they're from the same discipline as me, so it was not very difficult at all. Yeah, I think those are two very important points, and uh, both trusting your uh, collaborator and uh, ensuring you know ideologies and methodologies aligned. So we have a follow-up uh, ecological question, sticking to ecology. Uh, something you mentioned about almost like a you know an alternate stable state between open savannas and closed forests in central India in your landscape that you have worked so extensively for so long. Uh, and there's a growing recognition in the scientific community that savannas are a, a legitimate state and not some degraded forests, and they're adapted to fire, which you said has been burning for 13,000 years. Uh, yet the dominant narrative in the public and definitely in the forest department is that fire is bad. We saw recently in the Simlipal fires that happened early this year that there was a big hoo-ha about how it can be wrong and, and again, blaming local communities. And so there's ecological and social problems with that. So how does this debate influence your view while both while of forest use and extraction? Because that's a major part of your thesis, right? Uh, looking at extraction, because like you said, right, extraction can be good and bad, but from a purely ecological perspective, how, how do you reconcile that and what insights have you got? So first of all, uh, just to address the fire thing, we just got a CERB, okay? So me and this paleoecologist just got the CERB grant to untangle this fire climate historical aspect. So she's going to be doing the uh, paleoecology and I'll be doing the ecological modeling. So hopefully we have something concrete to say about this soon. Having said that, there is a study from Central India that shows that intermediate fire densities increase your biomass and species diversity, the inter intermediate disturbance hypothesis. But still, if you look at the still, if you look at all of Central India, there are still many areas that are burning at a frequency higher than that. And so it becomes a double-edged sword. Like one of the students in my class, he's really into uh, herbs. So he was finding it a little hard to like reconcile himself to the fact that the fire need not be bad for the forest. So he said, how is the herb going to survive? So for his class, for in the class, he then did an extensive literature review of how herbs adapt to fire. And sure enough, there are a lot of uh, uh, survival strategies that herbs have, burrowing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But even then, when he looked at the larger literature on this, what he found was, and again, the literature is mostly from Europe, North America, and Australia. What he found is again really complicated outcome, right? And a lot of your prescribed burns that have been instituted by uh, in, in America, Canada, Australia to mimic historical fire processes are occurring at a time where they are harming the amphibians, but they are occurring at a time that may not have been where they, when they ecologically took place. And so in, in so that's what, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so much complication here, right? A, what is the historicity of the fires? What's the season of the historicity of fires? Today, is it, are we still going to that level or are we doing more? If we're doing, uh, if we're doing it at that level, are we doing it in a way that is still mimicking it or not? It's just, and then there's really large ecological question, right? If something is happening, how do we decide what to conserve? 
Like, why are we privileging non-invasive species over invasive species? If something is happening naturally, I mean, why would you want to go against it? And so there's that question as well. So how do you decide what you're going to, what is your, what is the positive resulting of it? Okay, yeah. So um, I, I just had a quick follow-up, which is, um, I'm guessing you also have to deal with the forest department quite a bit. Um, and uh, either through your post PhD and now definitely, I guess, as a mentor and for your students going into field. Um, do, 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 you, do you think that this, this sort of nuance is hard to communicate to the forest department, uh, especially with fire and these kind of issues? And if so, how do you go about that? I've had pretty good experiences with the forest department. Can you tell us more? Because it seems like a rare opinion. in. The, in okay. So I guess I did my work with WII, my PhD work with Wildlife Institute of India. And if you make a recommendation, they communicate it to the forest department and then they change a lot of the protocols. Okay. Makes sense. And the other thing is in Central India, we set up the Central India Landscape Symposium, which began as a Kanha Paint Landscape Symposium, where what we did was we, from the beginning, we got together like all the disciplines and the managers. And so if you're in constant touch with the managers and uh, like if you take constant feedback from them, like a lot of the best questions, they only tell you. Like because they have so much in-depth knowledge of their system, they'll say, but you know, we don't have an answer to this or we don't have an answer to that. And so if you're, con if you're communicating with them a lot, they'll give you great suggestions. They'll give you ideas for testing that you didn't even know existing. That's my experience. And like the DFOs I've had in my projects, wow. Like I had this one DFO, uh, not in Central India, but like she was like the last bastion, right? Everybody's trying to convert the land into like private property. And she's like, every, like, every pastor of land, she's looking up historical documents, fighting the legal case. Some of these forest officers really, really, it's, it's a tough job. And I really do feel that I mean, if you think about it, at the end of the day, the forest department is the one who's protecting the forest. And um, sometimes, and there's a lot of research on this, their incentive structure may not align with other things, but these are all fixable problems with like more communication, more interaction, more feedback between the different things. In fact, in Central India Landscape Symposium, in the first iteration, we did a survey on how much are, are the different various stakeholders interacting with each other. So we had academics, we had managers, the forest department managers, we had the communities, so all the grants of ours, we had NGOs and we had the corporates. And the group least communicating with everybody else was the academics. Whereas, I mean, they were all self-reporting how much they interacted. And the group most interacting was the forest department. Because like literally between social forestry and uh, FRA, et cetera, they have to compulsively communicate with all of these. Uh, that's what, sometimes it's just like communication, et cetera, can really alter things. I think that's such an important point. Uh, <laughs> we really need to up our communication. Uh, and 
it also seems like there are just so many avenues in which a researcher or a scientist needs to communicate right i mean of course there's the academic work and the pubs and now there's also such a push to put out popular articles and media you have photo stories films but like you're you're absolutely right the the main stakeholders and the guys actually doing a lot of the stuff on ground is the forest department and yeah we should really dedicate some energies in that direction uh, for sure um you know it also uh, brings us to what we wanted to ask you you know there's been so much uh, going on right now in the news with regard to academic freedom you know and uh, you're also right now you know you're teaching in one of the hubs where they are advocating for this you know quite heavily and uh, but so just but that's of course in general for academics do you think this is especially important as an ecologist or a conservationist as well because um, you know of course there's so much uh, talk now where we want to scrutinize academic institutions and even government institutions for monitoring wildlife and how they do it and their methods and uh, you know maybe also by an extension is this also important for our forests not just say big mammals in the country so yeah i think academic freedom is absolutely important i think personal freedom of speech is also absolutely important i think these are like non negotiable and also there are rights as citizens and rights as humans it's like the it's like our one of our first rights as humans and citizens has this uh, have you seen it uh, you know affect your students have they been involved in this what is their take on uh, on it apart from the fundamental right but have you seen anybody applying this directly to what the fields they are interested in yes I mean, like that's the default, right? The default is that you're going to have complete academic freedom and complete freedom of speech. So that is the default. Like we don't begin with the assumption that you're going to have to censor yourself at all. Now you ask me the question of have they had to censor themselves? I haven't had any students yet who've had to censor themselves. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I yeah, I haven't had. That's great. That's great. <laughs> but uh, hopefully to stay that way but what i what's really been uh, amazing is that the whole ashoka community has really come together in support of academic freedom the institution should not censor you at all so whatever your thing is it's your right as a member of the institution to say whatever you want and to write whatever you want um moving on to a little uh, you know less intense uh, topics you've had a long career in the field and you've spent a lot of time and i'm sure they're full of very very interesting stories especially because you work at the intersection of people and wildlife and forests uh, can you share some of these with our listeners what are the ones that you if you try to remember like what, some things that mean a lot to you some funny ones that stand out so i think The one thing that sabotages a lot of my field work was something called these virgin ghosts. Okay, kuar ghosts. They were called the kuars. Going to do your transect point, right? And as soon as you take a step into the forest, a noise comes. Then you stop. It stops. You try it again. If you stop, it stops. And then if you go to a forest like that, nobody will go back to that forest to do a transect with you. I lost so many transect points thanks to these virgin ghosts. 
So and they're like, you know, we'll take, we'll take 30 people. The Virgin Coast will not be able to do anything to us. Still won't come. Is there an explanation for the noise, the sound? Or do you, are you convinced? I don't think it's a Virgin Coast. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like sometimes if you're doing a transact in the forest, suddenly the atmosphere changes, right? And you can feel the hair on the back of your neck standing up. And you and whoever's with you, I mean, you just know you've got to run. So you start running and as you're running, you encounter the cows who are also running, okay? And you're trying to elbow the cow out of the way because, you know, whoever the predator is will catch the slowest person. So if you're faster than the slowest cow, you're safe, right? So <laughs> I think it was either a predator giving a warning call or something like that. I think that's what, what it actually was. In Central India also, you have Naxals in the forest, right? And if you encounter them for the second time, it can lead to apparently bad outcomes. So, so often we'd also have people telling us like, don't go to that forest. It has like virgin ghosts. So that is a cue for not going to that forest. But sometimes you go, nobody warns you against it and you go there and this sort of phenomena happens. I think it's some sort of a predator. Interesting. Um, you know, I also wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the political ecology side of a lot of the work that you've done. And um, I mean, it's obviously a very multidisciplinary space. And uh, it's, I mean, even more important now to understand the politics of what's happening with our environment, considering how rapidly everything is changing in different hotspots across the country. Um, but what, what was it that made you want to look at politics uh, to begin with? And what has that experience been like with you? Um, I mean, is it is it as messy as ecology is? <laughs> so, the, so I guess the way they define political ecology is, it's basically either geography or anthropology or political science. But the assumption is that everything is political. So whether you're studying common property resources or, or you're studying people's access to forests, is it's all comes under political ecology. I so I guess it's just like your social science part of uh, natural nature-based conservation is called political ecology, but you can also call it anthropology or like geography or any of these other disciplines. The thing is now, of course, these disciplines are strongly rooted in qualitative research and ethnography. And the thing is, so at Columbia, they had this uh, thing that if you had any discipline going into your thesis, you had to pass a qualifying exam in it. So those of us who had interaction with humans, we had to pass an exam in like anthropology or political ecology. So, but, but even though those methods are there, my own bias is that I use just social science research methods. So like, I, even though like, so for my recent project, we had an ethnographer on the ground, right? Just to collect more qualitative data, but just the way I can write and the way I can analyze, I'm more comfortable with statistics. So the way I do it, exactly like an ecological project. You do the large scale, you do a large scale preliminary analysis. You find what the pattern is. You find where your variation is. You set up your sampling design to catch the variation so that you can do hypothesis testing. Then you go in and collect the samples to do the testing. So I do it in, in identical in exactly the same way. And just like with a field survey, you try out a first field protocol, you find like, you know, you miss something really important. Same with the survey, you try it out, you pilot it in the field, you find you're missing a lot. 
especially in the beginning when you do piloting of a social survey it's good to spend at least a couple of months there because you'll pick up on a lot that you would pick up on otherwise and then you just pilot it a bit until it it's actually appropriate for that question and for that area and then you collect replicates etc just like you would for an ecological survey i mean that's the way i do it so just to come at uh, you know what your personal uh, you know investment in something like this is uh so like you said you are you know an ecologist at heart and that's what really excites you but of course when you spend so much time in the field and you meet so many people you realize the importance of doing these more anthropological things as part of the study uh but for you now where are you at when you do a lot of these multidisciplinary studies is it because you actively are now interested in the ethnographic side of collecting data or do you feel like you're doing it to fit in that missing piece of the puzzle like is it something you have to do or so i get so you when i think of, when i think of a question i and i feel that everybody is moving towards that when you think of a question you can answer it using economics you can answer it using ecology you can answer it using anthropology and each of those is going to give you completely different but completely correct answers right because they're looking at different scales of the problem some factors operate at larger scale some factors operate at smaller scale some factors operate at longer scales some at shorter scales so in order to actually answer a question you need all of the disciplines so you may not have expertise in some of the disciplines but i do believe that we need to work with uh, people who can bring a complete disciplinary uh, all the disciplines that are relevant to a question should be in the question otherwise you're missing something really major and that's i don't think that's appropriate so i may be an ecologist and i may not have the best ethnographic skills but i would bring an ethnographer ethnographer on just to get a holistic understanding of the question so i mean if you take any question right it has like every discipline will give you with completely appropriate methodology will give you completely correct but completely different answer because of the just the scale of the question the this units of analysis it's just going to give you a different answer but if you integrate them all you get a really clear understanding of the system and say you are interested in conservation or some sort of policy intervention it does make sense to know or to understand the system holistic does that make sense yeah yeah it does for sure and definitely something to uh, keep in mind i guess for all of us uh, whatever bit of ecology or the the natural world we're interacting with uh, i think we're sort of coming to a close with our interview this has been great but i think before we let you go uh, there are a few um, things that we think our listeners would love love to hear which is uh, your inspirations it could be books it could be people you mentioned some turning points in your life like how uh, you learned deductive reasoning from shumanto bakchi at who's now at IIC and you you had people along the way and your interaction with forest department as well but uh, it could it sure it's a learning process and you're still having you know you could have been inspired last week but or 20 years ago so could you share some of those things that come to your mind well so you had another question here about what would you recommend a first year ferguson college student do right so right next to ferguson college there's the british library which is like i think the subscription is 70 rupees okay it's like some ridiculously low amount and you have all 
all the books, right? Like you can get anything from like Matt Ridley to Jerry Diamond, etc. So when I was that age, I read a lot of those books and they really give you a larger perspective. And so when you're studying your textbooks, you know where that plugs into the larger story. So that was really inspiring. And uh, I don't know, I haven't thought about it. Honestly, it's quite, it happens quite often. Can we do a rapid fire and ask you, people, Name a couple of people. Okay, I think so. I'll tell you that the probably the most inspiring was at NCF because A, there was Shimonto in the field, right? But also like in the office, every day they'd get together and discuss like statistics. Oh, what would be the most appropriate statistical design for this or that or the other? And just that whole experience, it just, it was really transformative. Then I think when I went to Sholapur, I had this field assistant called Bapu More. Like he really, really changed my perspective on a lot of things. He was really inspiring. Then um, the landscapes themselves are so inspiring. Like when you get off the bus stand and it's all, the system is opaque, right? It's just a bazaar. And then as you stay there for years and years, it, it just... Um, you know, unravels in front of you and you understand the system. That, I really enjoyed that also. Oh, I'll tell you more. Okay. I've actually got my inspirations now. So when I was at Yale also, uh, there was this professor called Lisa Curran and she had spent many, many years in Borneo. And she had this really cool study and she was, fortunately for me, she is the person who taught me research methods. And so she was somebody that one would really want to emulate. Like she was really inspiring. Then when I was in Colombia, there was this professor called Maria Uriarte. And she not only taught me mathematical modeling for ecology, but also did my second research methods course, right? The one in which I actually wrote my proposal. And, you know, I think I try to copy everything of hers. Like she's really been an inspiration to me. Then my own PhD advisor, Ruth DeFries, she was also, what was really cool about her was that she always gets the big picture and so it's like, no matter what idea you have, she'll say, go for it. Like, there's no, like, it's just like, it really helps you think really big and not be like cowed down by like, oh, I don't know if it's even possible. So you can think at that scale. Then I have to say, so my co-advisor for my PhD was this person called Josh Ginsberg. He was also really inspiring. So when I was in the field, he would like tell me stuff like, okay, don't miss the forest for the trees things like that. So it really kept me constantly thinking about, instead of just counting the trees or, you know, measuring the DBH, like I was constantly thinking about the system, what is with what, things like that. Then, uh, yeah, I think ecologically and of course, the greats, right? Your Charles Darwin, your Alfred Russell Wallace, those guys. Oh, that's, I think it's just so great to see little bits of your journey and all the influences and the fact that you're just so excited about the systems you're working in. And um, and yeah, I think, you know, just to quickly add to what you were saying that, uh, you know, when you bring in a lot of these qualitative sides of uh, work as a part of your larger study, it also helps that landscape unravel a bit more, right? Like you were saying. And I think that's just so much fun. Um, it can be a future question to answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Hey, thanks so much, Meghna. This was so much fun to chat with you, and uh, you just got such a fun energy. I feel so enthused after this conversation. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll definitely keep in touch. And like Akshay was saying, uh, the work you're about to begin is also sounding really exciting. So, so one, I just want to add one more question that you had asked that I wanted to answer. And yeah. this is about dis- teaching interdisciplinarity in a university like Ashoka. So supposing you have a class, very often you'll get the humanities type kids who think like statistics is evil and positivism is evil, right? And then you right. get the other type of kids who thinks humanities is too pomo, right? And nothing worthwhile is going to emerge from it. And so your challenge is often in the classroom take to these two disparate levels of students who have, like just the way Ashoka is structured, you have to take courses in the other disciplines, right? But you can take it and still be, your mind can be closed off. And so it is a challenge, all of us face it, to integrate that classroom. And so, I mean, the way to do it is, like I, I have people who work in the field coming in and talking, or I'll have, make them read actual case studies in both the disciplines. So like you have people who like, philosophy majors, right, have never read a science paper in their life and they're having to like read like, you know, Kulbushan Snow Leopard paper and papers like that. Or you have people like who like totally always dismiss humanities, right, and they're having to read like, you know, actual ethnographic work. So as they keep reading, at the, at the end of the day, you cannot deny the other side, right, if you've read enough with a sort of open mind. So, I mean, that is a challenge that all of us face in our classrooms and it is something we try to bridge. Because at the end of the day, you don't, if you're working in the same area, you don't want one side to dismiss the other side. Very important point and hazarding, you know, a pat on our own backs. But this has been our motivation for the podcast, which is trying to uh, get people uh, from various disciplines to sort of force different different lenses of looking at the same thing, which I'm guessing everyone's interested in nature, but in different ways. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great that you're sort of also creating these spaces where you're forced to confront the other and then reconcile. Okay, thanks guys. Thank you for having me. And I hope it was helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely it was, Mehna. And um, I mean, I think you're so right in terms of wanting to establish some of those influences early on. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, we are hoping a lot more uh, educational spaces start doing. And um, And I feel the challenge here is it is easier for a scientist to read an anthropology paper than for an anthropologist to read a science paper. So that is the challenge. So we either we do a lot of public outreach like you guys are doing or we get because science papers look intimidating, right? And so a lot of people just don't attempt it because it just looks so intimidating. Some people are intimidated by tables. So perhaps, I mean, something there, like I just force them to read these like scary looking papers to show them that actually it's not scary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Super. Thanks so Thanks much, so Mina. This was great. It was a lot of fun. Okay, see ya. We had a great time recording this episode. We hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening.